Welcome to Thorns Have Roses podcast. Uh, I'm Anurag Papalu and I'm a guy who stares at pigeons outside the window. <laughs> huh? I, didn't, I didn't expect you to say that. Right, that's uh so if you see all the things I did today, the period of time where I had the most sustained focus on any one thing was uh, looking at these pigeons uh, hanging out in my balcony. So I figured that's what I am. And uh, why don't you introduce yourself? All right, I'm Christina Lee and I'm normal. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh as I'm sure like everyone can tell who's the interesting one in this in our duo here. Um all right. So, uh this is our first episode. Okay, so every so often we'll have uh episodes where it'll be more conversational in nature and we'll each bring a topic that we're interested in talking about at length. Right. And these uh topics can be about anything really. Just something that held our attention and made us think about uh not just in passing but for a while. And we'll also have uh interviews. We have those lined up. So in today's episode we'll be discussing all the confusion that we've had as Asian Americans in the wake of anti-Asian violence. And we'll also be talking about how American society makes teenagers to isolate. and also ghost fuck so let's start with uh, what do you have for us christina so starting off i wanted to discuss something that's pretty unavoidable uh if you are asian american um and that is the wave of anti-asian violence and hate that has continued in this country and mm. um especially with the Atlanta massacre that happened on March 16th i think that was a real inflection point during which this entire wave over the past year has really become politicized at a larger extent than it has been before why do you think this was an uh, inflection point is it just because like you know it's because like a lot of people died i think uh, it has something to do with the fact that it was a mass shooting so automatically that's going to get more media coverage and i think it was also a very specific type of incident where a lot of different factors kind of intersected you know you saw how there was class and misogyny anti-asian sentiment immigration all these things that are kind of tied to anti-asian hatred you can find within this one incident over the past week or two weeks i've seen a flood of stories from a lot of asian americans and even asians who aren't in the us who are in other westernized societies come forward with a lot of different stories uh so it really did spark something within a lot of people maybe is just a result of so many hate incidents happening uh over the past year and then this really kind of triggered an emotional outpouring from a lot of people and maybe it unleashed a lot of uh pain that people were keeping hidden the the Atlanta massacre like has become like the defining moment of yeah. talking about anti-Asian racism that you know has served as an undercurrent throughout american history since asians had first yeah. come to the country so so we use the term api which stands for asian american pacific islander so yeah so there is api which i didn't know what it means actually you had to clarify it to me so is sort of this term api 
what context did it come about in? Because for me, what I'm confused about is why are Pacific Islanders lumped in with Asian Americans? Yeah, it is interesting. I think uh, I've heard actually in other westernized countries, that's not the case. So for example, in Australia, they don't actually lump Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders together. They're different categories. But API, it's more of like a demographic indicator. The The origins of the term Asian American came about in 1968, and it was on the University of California, Berkeley campus. And before then, the term Oriental was used to describe Asians mm-hmm. or Asian Americans in this country. And so it was a way to kind of move away from, move that, away term. from that term and also just create their own identity. Um, and yeah, it was born out of a, a need for political solidarity, especially in response to the Vietnam War. There was a pan-Asian American coalition that was created from a time of political turmoil. And since then, at least like during the time that I grew up, Asian American kind of became more of mm-hmm. a, a marker of identity. You know, it became more of like a way into exploring your own identity or culture. And it became less about any kind of political unity. So we haven't really seen a lot of coming together of Asian Americans in recent history. Right now, I feel like we're seeing a lot of um, stories that are very generalized forms of racism, and we're kind of losing the specificity of this wave of anti-Asian violence that has kind of culminated in the Atlanta massacre. Right. Basically, I want to speak about it from a very distinct Chinese-American perspective. Because there is something very unique happening here that I feel like isn't really being taken into account. I feel like it's kind of getting lost in the torrent of different stories and experiences people have had. And that's not to diminish anyone else's pain or trauma or anything that they're going through because all that is completely valid. And I think there there does need to be a space for everyone to kind of unleash whatever they need to. Um, and also just to publicize all of the even mundane and kind of innocuous ways that racism seeps into daily life, right? But there also needs to be as much discussion about how much of everything that is going on at its root cause is because of xenophobia and anti-China rhetoric. It was interesting to go through social media and be in a lot of different forums and be in dialogue with a lot of different Asian American communities because what I've seen is that there is a difference in how Mm -hmm. Chinese Americans are talking about this and processing this and how non-Chinese Asian Americans are talking about it. Right. Well, what's that like? So I remember the day after this happened, um, I was in a clubhouse room with people who are Chinese or Chinese American or mm. of Chinese descent. I could get the sense that there there was just immense despair and pessimism that I hadn't really seen mm-hmm. anywhere else. Yeah, there, there's this initial recognition that all of this leads back to xenophobia, probably because we have had that in the back of our minds and have been kind of watching this shadow slowly creep up over our heads. I, I guess Chinese people had a sense that, you know, things are going to get bad. And it was yes, a matter exactly. of when. Yes. And I think the pessimism comes about because it just feels like it's very hard for, for this to end anytime soon. It's basically because of like political tensions between the U.S. and China. Right, exactly. COVID, There's uh, like, coming out of China is what 
is driving this Sinophobia, right? Basically, with escalating tensions between the U.S. and China having existed pre-COVID, you know, that that was already a thing that people have been worried about. Um, and then you have the fact that, you know, the COVID pandemic really started in China and spread from there. And so you have, you know, for the past year, the Trump administration making a lot of tasteless remarks about COVID and, you know, equating it to the China virus or Wuhan virus or whatever, mm -hmm. um, basically trying to put all the blame on China, you know, as kind of like a way to deflect from their own deficiencies within their government. And so, yeah, China was a very easy thing to blame. Yep. And, you know, some people, then that makes it very easy for other people to vilify China. And, you know, over the past year, the pandemic, you know, it's not that surprising that after people have lost their jobs, their wages, housing, like, there's so many really terrible things that have happened. And when you have that kind of, that scale of destitution and people in very dire situations and, you know, losing loved ones, it's very easy to have some kind of rage or fear bubbling up. And so you want to take it out on someone. You know, when I saw other Asian Americans talking about it, it was never with the same level of specificity. Right. This is kind of a problem that I've seen is that because we are under this very broad umbrella group of Asian American it invites people to talk about racism in a very generalized way because that is kind of what we can all relate to as a group of Asian Americans. So, you know, people talking about model minority stereotype or the over-sexualization of women being targeted as a foreigner or an other. East Asian Americans are getting attacked by not Asian Americans because of Sinophobia. So ideally... Or at least I, I would think the ideal response for the Asian community as a whole would be to talk about Sinophobia and Xenophobia and how this is a problem. But right. what I see it getting it turned into is more of like the, it's like a continuation of what happened in summer 2020 following George Floyd. And even before that, you know, racism in general about how people's careers are treated and you know, about like microaggressions at the workplace and, uh, and it kind of, and the whole thing kind of like loses something when you start talking about people dying and you talk about, uh, what kind of jobs people have and things like that. Exactly. Yes. This is, <laughs> you just put it so well. It's almost because we haven't politically organized that we have different ways of confronting this. And yeah, the only like real connection we have as a, as a larger Asian American group is through is through talking about racism in very generalized terms. So like you're saying, like microaggressions and, you know, having your name mispronounced or being mistaken for another Asian person, um, mm -hmm. all these things that really don't address, you know, the root cause of this particular anti-Asian violence. And um, if you don't really address the root cause, then you, you're not able to come up with tangible solutions, but also at the same time, like the people who are the most vulnerable to these attacks are people who are perceived to be the most foreign and maybe kind of seem to be the least assimilated. So it's going to be people who, you know, are older, probably don't speak a lot of English, um, probably are working class, probably are in jobs that expose them to more risks. Mm -hmm. They obviously can't relate to a lot of stuff that like a lot of 
Asian Americans have been talking about. Yes, if some office bro is saying I didn't get promotion for whatever reason, this doesn't mean anything to the people who got attacked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't it doesn't help people who are actually at the most risk of being attacked and suffering from the most brutal kind of attacks as well. You know, I, I there is some fear for people to be assaulted on the streets and to be verbally accosted. You know, there have been plenty of stories about that. And that really does seem to affect a spectrum of Asian Americans, regardless of socioeconomic status or age. Right. Yeah. But the people who are getting attacked the most aggressively and have had the most kind of gruesome injuries or have, have, you know, been killed and murdered, you know, that has been a very specific subset of Asians and Asian Americans. Yeah, I think you can see this in contrast with what happened uh, with the Black Lives Matter protests, right? Because when Breonna Taylor was killed, when George Floyd got murdered, uh, and everyone went to protest, the protests were very specifically about people getting killed. There was some background noise about uh, other kinds of racism, but the protests that, you know, many non-black people also were a part of, like also joined, they were very specifically protesting about people getting killed. But that's not what we see here. Yeah, maybe that has to do with the fact that Black Lives Matter existed since 2014. And so they they have, uh, you know, this... this political alliance and uh, like a very specific movement with a specific mission involved. And the Asian community just doesn't really have that just yet. You know, even stop Asian hate, you know, like what, what exactly is that referring to? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's so generalized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It really speaks to just the, the fractures within the community. But it's it's kind of natural and it, it really does show that there needs to be a lot more organization because, you know, Korean Americans are not the same as Chinese Americans are not the same as Japanese Americans are not the same as uh, Filipino Americans. And so, if anything, that means that there needs to be more of an active process of organizing to be able to get these things right. Yeah, and I'm hoping that out of this, there will be some real political solidarity moving forward. Right. Uh, But not to be the pessimist that I am, it's going to be like a very like dark and like traumatic process where you kind of see these incidents happening again and again. And with each step, different groups will like slowly make moves to actually like consolidate and have an organized front. Right. That's just how these things work. Right. Like it's. Even with Black Lives Matter, black people were getting murdered by police for a very long time. And then eventually it got to this one point where it all came together. And like it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah. Basically, in the meantime, we, we have a lot of a lot more xenophobia to look forward to. <laughs> it's only going to escalate. Even if you see yes. what the Biden, Biden administration is doing uh you know he's he, he's he's like a nice sweet little boy when it's when he's talking about Americans we all need to come together and heal and shit but when it comes to uh, foreign policy like he's like oh America is in charge and like everybody needs to follow so that's yes. going to be the rhetoric coming out for the next uh, for how long Biden is in power 
and also post Biden. I think this will be just something that will be a part of our reality for years to come. If you think about it, this is the first time in modern history that a non-white, non-Western country is threatening Western hegemony and empire. And that's not to say that we can't be critical of the Chinese government when we need to be, but we have to be careful about how we talk about China so that we don't stoke any kind of irrational fear. You know, when you have political rhetoric that is talking about the fact that we need to curb the rise of China or that we need to tackle China head on, we need to outcompete China, you know, all of that paints this picture that there will be an inevitable battle between U.S. and China, which is often seen as a battle between two civilizations and two different ideologies. And it seems like oftentimes it just kind of props up the U.S. as this empire that needs to be preserved or that there isn't room in this world for two or more superpowers to coexist at the same time. So if we're not mindful of the way in which we talk about China in our media and from our politicians, then it can very easily sway how Americans view China and by extension Chinese people and by further extension East Asians and other Asians as something to fear, as something to fight. Right. Do you think uh, other Americans, uh, other American groups that are not Asian American will ever have the sense to recognize that Asian Americans are not homogenous and there might be like a movement to kind of divide the group? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point because I've been thinking about that too. I've been wondering where uh, the Asian American community will go moving forward, whether or not we'll, you know, really try to come together in ways that we haven't in the past, you know? During the LA riots in 1992, you didn't really see other Asian Americans uh, coming together with Korean Americans. Even uh, after 9-11, You didn't see other Asian Americans rallying with South Asians. And so I'm curious with this, whether or not, you know, it will actually solidify the Asian American community and really, you know, try to have people come together and form some kind of solidarity for Chinese Americans, or if it'll go the other way and have people, you know, have Asian Americans be like, oh, I'm not Chinese, you know, like don't associate myself with them. Yeah. Did did you see those t-shirts which say I'm not Chinese? Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that that could be another route that it takes where you see more fissures and people trying to distance themselves from Chinese and Chinese Americans. Right. Yeah. I mean, like Asian American as a term kind of, you know, just because it's been coined doesn't mean that now that's a thing and everybody has to like follow it. Right. There's no reason why this has to be like a permanent group of any sort. These these things are not set in stone. And I think uh, it, it, it helps a lot for the people who are affected to think about it that way too. Yeah. So it, it's like there, there either has to be a lot of work done to separate the groups or there has to be a lot of work to be done to integrate the groups. And Absolutely. they both have different implications and you do it in different ways. Uh, right. But we are kind of stuck somewhere in the middle now, it seems like. I also want to make sure that any kind of Asian American solidarity that comes out of this always centers the most vulnerable. 
So that means making sure that we're always looking at labor issues, right? I feel like sometimes the conversation gets overpowered by discussion of representation in media and politics and diversity initiatives in the workplace. And that doesn't always translate across class divides. Yeah. Representation absolutely won't save any of us if it's if uh, economic conditions don't actually improve for the vast majority of people. You know, if we fall into this trap of seeing representation and diversity as societal progress, we become so focused on getting diverse voices and diverse stories out there, thinking that it will humanize us and keep us from being harassed and discriminated against. But if we don't do anything to address how our economic system as it's set up is really failing so many people, and the fact that living wages haven't changed in the U.S. in the past decade, then nothing really changes in the end. So far, it feels like so much of people's understanding of Asian culture has been through very capitalist terms, you know? It's been through consumption of media and entertainment and food, and I really want us to mm-hmm. go beyond yeah. that. Yeah, I, I usually, the way I think of these things, uh, I expect something good might happen sometime in the next century, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, so we may not be around yeah. to see yeah. what that may be. Also, who knows? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm a pessimist. Well, it doesn't help to have two pessimists on the same podcast. Yeah, it's all right. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But, <laughs> but, but, but I'm a pessimist by like kind of like a survival strategy. So uh, things might turn out to be very different for somehow, and that'll be that'll be good. All right. So moving on. Hopefully, you have a more uplifting topic. Not really, but uh, I'll I'll try. I'll I'll see what I can do. So what I want to talk about was, uh, so I was speaking to my sister the other night and she was telling me about my cousin who is, uh, I think in the last year of middle school now, uh, and she kind of lives in like a Southern state with her mom and dad. She's an only child and she's very depressed. And, and that kind of got me thinking about what kind of environment, uh, children have growing up here because I feel like there's a, like we see, depression as a very like individual thing but i really Mm. think that the community that you're in and the society that you're in play a Mm. really big role in this and you can see that because in the last few years the rates of depression have gone up by a lot in teenagers and adolescents and even more in like young girls right and so this is like a society-wide phenomenon so it cannot be seen as like, oh, this person, something is wrong with the chemicals inside this person's body. So mm-hmm. they're sad. And now you take some medicines and therapy and, you know, it's going to like fix right. it. Right. Yeah. And um, actually, you know, being a psychology major in college, that is how we've always talked about depression and um, mental health issues in general. But I, I agree with you. In the last couple of years i've also been attributing it more to society right you know like her parents are both from india right and they grew up in a very different environment than the one she's growing up in right now that like both their families had like five six siblings right and then like they lived with the extended like joint family so there there was always somebody to like be around and she's a single child so there's like nobody so that's one thing And also, like, she's living in the suburbs where 
people live far away from each other and so you just have less people around you and that kind of leads to your own like sense of isolation and i think like another thing is you know i got bullied when i was in school like i was depressed when i was in school but i i didn't realize that when it was happening right it was only much later that i was like oh this happened to me and i think now it's very different for young people because when they know it's happening they know exactly what it is they know that it's bullying and they know that like bullying in some cases can lead to like very serious problems and that that it's a big deal like when it was happening to me i didn't know it was a big deal like for me it was kind of just like a mental state that i was in and for whatever reasons which i will get to that went away at some point but now mm-hmm. you know you're depressed and you know what depression can lead to and that it's like a very serious problem and so mm-hmm. just the weight of this knowledge can like it can make the problem much more severe one and so i was i was also thinking about like how i was able to deal with these things so unconsciously and one of the things i realized that as a kid growing up i had access to many discrete groups of people so if i was having a bad time in school like i fought with some friends or whatever and now like nobody was talking to me then i could go home and i had a set of friends at home who were completely different from the kids i was hanging out with in school so in india like everyone goes to private school so it's not like in the us where everybody from one area goes to the same school so when you come back home the kids at home are like the same people you can never get out of this same group of so people so do you feel like if she had these same problems but she was somewhere not in the US mm. she would still be feeling this way like how much of all of this is particular or specific to american society if she was in india i she grew up in the same environment that i did i think this would be less likely right because of the of this access to these groups so if i fought with my friends at home also then on the weekends i would go and visit my cousins so that was a separate group and if i fought with them also then <laughs> on like on weekday evenings i used to go and play tennis and that was like a separate group of people like kids used to come from all around the city and you know and none of these people knew each other so i had like different personalities with these people we spoke about different things and so it was really easy to like uh, not deal with it and the thing is it, that gives you space to be yourself and it makes the problem seem less all encompassing right mm-hmm. and but but with her what it's like is she has this problem in school and then she's growing up in a completely different country that her parents mm-hmm. have not so they'll have trouble understanding her problems mm-hmm. and then if she wants to like go out children around her house are the same as the people in school so there's some kind of like bleeding like mm-hmm. le- leakage of that social situation like comes in she doesn't have access to an extended family because it's just them mm-hmm. who've moved to that part of the US and nobody else is there mm-hmm. and all these things are obviously very clearly creating this isolation for her and like there, there's no like pressure valve or there's no like way for her to like cope with anything people look at depression as kind of like an individual problem but i wonder if cities and like communities recognize this and kind of change some of these systems to give children access to different groups of friends. so what is it specifically about different or discrete communities you might think like something is wrong with you as a person 
right? But if you're treated one way in one place and you go to another place and you're not treated that way, mm-hmm. it kind of says, okay, like, you know, it's it's not me. It can The problem can be like right. somewhere else. But if the same problem is following you everywhere because you are kind of isolated and you don't have access to this other set of people who don't know about this problem and treat you differently, you cannot feel that. I'm trying to think about how much um, of what's happening is kind of uh, unique to her situation and how much of it is a byproduct of living within the U.S. Right, right. What is unique could be the immigrant parents. So the parts that I can really relate to, you know, like I I grew up, you know, in the suburbs of Kansas Mm -hmm. uh, with immigrant parents. And it was only my parents, me and my brother in the U.S. Everyone else in my family was in China. Mm -hmm. So I I never had extended family members in the U.S. I never had had that kind of safety net Mm -hmm. the same way that maybe my friends did. What about uh, what about like access to different groups of friends was it the same school friends that you saw yeah everywhere? but yes <laughs> all, all of my friends when I was growing up were from school um but I had you know different friend groups right. but they all were from mm-hmm. my school um so yeah I did think that helped a bit just to be able to move around from friend group to friend group but you know I I didn't have a strong sense of self and I think that contributed to a lot of my overall experience of being a bit isolated or distant or kind of reserved and just like never really being comfortable with myself or my surroundings mm-hmm. you know so there's a lot that I can relate to um but I I don't know I I don't know about this um different kinds of communities I don't know how much because I also feel like you can you can get through a lot just having you know one or two really good friends yeah that that could be true. Yes, yes. Like some people will help you out a lot more than others. But it's not just that you need like one person to understand you or two people to understand you when like there's 50 people at school who are bullying you or, or, or like teasing you at school or whatever. Mm. Right? Those people like still exist. And So what's the source of the bullying? I, I don't know. You know how it is at school. Like something like really like stupid happens yeah. and now like you become like the like a big target. So like one or two people being really close to you and supporting you is like one thing. But see, those people still know about what happened in school, right? So they're still part of this one system that has become one environment that has become a problem for you. I'm saying children should have access to a completely separate environment where that problem just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's and it's really weird that like society over here kind of doesn't allow for that. Mm. Right? And weirdly I'm thinking the reason for it is one thing is you know like suburban living like you live like in a nuclear family mm-hmm. which if you think about it is like a very new invention. Mm-hmm. Humans didn't evolve that way. Neither mm-hmm. did they live like that through a majority of history. Mm-hmm. And this is a byproduct of I don't know what like capitalism or something that a child has to grow up with max two three other people at home and the only other right. environment they have access to is like a big public institution right where right. really like almost nobody can control anything. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting point that yeah. you bring up. Yeah, I guess American kids don't really move through like different kinds of spheres that you're talking about. Yeah, it's very contained. You know, you have your home life, which is, yeah, the nuclear family. And then you have your school life. And you kind of just move between those two worlds. Right, right. Because I I used to play tennis when I was a kid. And I would go to this, like, tennis court, like, where they would have these coaches. And, like, kids from around the city would come. Like, we would learn how to play tennis. If you were to do the same thing in the U.S., that would be at school. 
Yes, yeah, that would just be considered an extracurricular activity. At school? Yes, at school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be a tennis coach that is employed by the school. Yeah, exactly. So again, so even after school, if you want to go and do something, mm-hmm. you are still in that same environment absolutely. with the same yes, people. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like society somehow has organized itself in a way that's bad for children. Like, it's so strange. Mm-hmm. In recent years, I've just been like, how can you not be depressed <laughs> in the American society? Right, right. You know, and now there's also social media, which again, who are your friends on social media when you're in school? All your school friends. Right? <laughs> and like celebrities or whatever. Mm-hmm. One group will be abusing you and then like you're looking at celebrities and you're like, oh, their life is so perfect. Why don't I have it? It's just like every system that exists is like not that great. Yeah, it's uh, just rampant individualism. You know, there's no real sense of community. Yeah, and as an adult, you have much more freedom to choose who you hang out with. But yeah, obviously, like when you're adults, like mm-hmm. it's harder mm-hmm. to make friends, but mm-hmm. you still have that agency. Whereas again, like children don't mm-hmm. don't have that. Right, and obviously, it's much more serious when you're a child. You know, like that that's the time when. There should be more measures in place, right? There should be measures in place to ensure that that the kid is having a good time, right? Has a good childhood. Yes, yes. But most of the measures that like, if you think about like what parents are concerned about when they're children, you think a lot about like security, safety, really what it should be about is whether they're having a good childhood which yeah yeah exactly yeah so that i don't know like neighborhood should or or like suburban like local government should come up with some kind of like separate space where children can hang out or you know meet new children or have some kind of i don't know some kind of like exchange program between like different communities or Mm. there has to be like something there's like a serious lack of access yeah something for kids to just be kids yeah the only institutions that exist are when kids are in trouble they'll go there you know? <laughs> right. where can kids go when they're not in trouble and i'm not saying like life in india is like perfect with trying to be a part of a community with having a joint family or whatever there's like this other set of pressures that that come in yeah right? so uh, yeah you can you can see that in other you know uh, countries that are collectivist in nature you know exactly there might be more of an emphasis on community and really fostering that for kids growing up but you yeah you still see problems with just like a competition and you know education being the prime goal yeah so it's not necessarily better right right and then there's a pressure to conform so if you're a little different Mm -hmm. somebody else in charge will dictate like whether that's okay or not so there's all these problems that come with growing up in eastern countries or like growing up in india has as well and and there you see the same problem that I'm talking about here in school where there the pressure to conform like all of society is in functioning in like one way so now if you're different then that's inescapable right just like how mm-hmm. I'm saying these problems are inescapable for children in the US right because of isolation there these problems are inescapable because they're a part of such a big group that thinks in like a certain way mm-hmm. so i th- i think the right environment would be like somewhere in between where it's not that right. collectivist, but it's not so, like, isolationist. Yeah, and so I think like, there's something to be done in, like, both places to kind of tweak this in a way where you can get to that situation. But but then another thing that I, that I think is, in India, I- I- even if you have all those problems, you still have that system that 
support system that will like help you out in like some way uh but in the us you don't have that like you're kind of left to deal with it alone which is a problem so i'm saying the systems in india like do do their job really well despite society having a lack of understanding of mm-hmm. bullying depression the right kind of parenting despite all these problems the system exists to help the kid but in the us there is a strong understanding of all these issues but there is a lack of system which is an interesting contradiction all right that's what i have that's uh, what i want to talk about okay great and then you had your third thing so the other story i have for you is about the rise of ghost forests on the east coast mm. of the us and also the gulf coast uh, so this is a climate change issue Wh- what do you think what do you think a ghost forest is a, a ghost forest is a forest that doesn't really exist right it's 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 like a are you saying it's like a like a forest with ghost trees which like you can put your hand through and like you know you hear like spooky sounds coming out of i i i don't know please tell me all right so a ghost forest is uh, basically a forest that is on the coast but because of rising sea levels salt water is basically going into these forests and it's going into the soil so these forests are all like they need fresh water all the trees but the salt water kind of stops the roots from taking up nutrients so now you have these like stretches on the east coast where you just see all these dead trees right and mm-hmm. they kind of look creepy because the trees die and then you know the coastal breeze and the winds kind of like remove all the branches and the leaves and stuff so they're mm-hmm. just like these monolithic like tree stumps like sticking out of the water in some cases or just like it's just like barren land and all these dead trees so basically there's there was a new report that came out from a study at uh, Rutgers which said that this phenomenon is increasing a lot and another thing that happens is once the forests like die you see the spreading of like marshes mm-hmm. because marsh plants are much more adaptable so they just kind of take over the forest so the forests are receding and is being reproduced uh, like replaced by marshes What made me interested in this thing is first of all the term ghost forest sounds really creepy like it kind of stuck with me mm-hmm. like once i read it mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of like poetic in a way right. it could be like the name of a poem <laughs> or yeah. like the name of a, of a band yeah that that could be a band name yeah but but the other thing that i thought was really interesting was like when you think of sea level rise generally like what comes to your mind what kind of image do you see um just like barren lands just like loss of habitat you know houses being destroyed i guess i i'm thinking about it right, more and just right. like uh, uh yeah in, in like terms of habitation just like where people can live right. or like where plants can grow where animals can go right so when i used to hear this term sea level rise what always used to come to my mind was cities being flooded mm-hmm. I would think about like Bombay or like Dhaka or like New York City being like you know Brooklyn being like filled with water and so like people having to leave. Right. So the effects of sea level rise to me were always on people. Mm-hmm. Sure. So then suddenly it was interesting to think about what about all the other coastal land which are not cities, right? Like what's going to happen to them? So this is actually the first time that I thought about what would happen to nature because of sea level rise rather than what would happen to people. Which is kind of like fucked up. Mm, right, it's <laughs> right? uh, speciesism. Right, yeah. You're thinking about something as big as sea level rise, you know, encroaching like all coastal land. And all you can think about is like what is going to happen to people, mm. right? Like that's a, it kind of says a lot about how 
I think mm-hmm. of the world and stuff, which is kind of sad. Like, I don't think I think of the world like that, but unconsciously, that's right how I think. And you're you're already and, someone uh, who's plugged into the climate crisis. Like, you keep a pretty good eye on what's happening, you know? Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And you still kind of think in that way. Yeah, and this kind of goes to show, like, how huge these problems are. Okay, not only will, like, people get displaced, but also, like, all the vegetation on the, <laughs> all the forest on the course will die out and so there is uh, everything else that's related to climate change there's like a negative feedback loop going on here so all these trees that live by the coast are evergreen trees so that means they absorb carbon throughout the year so if the coastal trees die that means that all that carbon is not going to be absorbed like they're especially good and now the especially good trees are dying out And that will make sea level rise worse. Mm. So there's this negative feedback loop. Here. Right. The one thing that makes it not completely terrible and there's kind of like a silver lining is that uh, marshes are also good carbon sinks and they support like a wide variety of biodiversity. Mm-hmm. So people are trying to figure out like how to manage these marshes in a way where they kind of do the same function. So we've, we've kind of lost the forest, like the forests are going to go and now we have the marshes and so now we have to figure out like how to handle the marshes properly. Mm. And yeah, and, and the thing is these ghost forests like are causing like a lot of problems. There was a story I read recently where guitars are made out of like a very specific kind of wood and that wood comes from coastal forests. But now all these trees died. So I'm not able to make these guitars. Mm-hmm. So then I had this image of like uh, all these musicians like suddenly becoming like climate activists right. and making like climate related songs <laughs> because they're like pissed off that, you know, it's affecting their own world. Mm. But I feel like that's going to happen, right? Like, yes, yeah. As we feel the effects of climate change more, more and more groups of people are going to be affected yes, by it. Yes, for different reasons. Yeah. yeah. People will, will join together, but like each person will have their own kind of interests or stakes. Like eventually everybody has to become a climate activist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it just becomes a matter of time, right? Yes. Can we all become climate activists yeah. in time? So why don't you yeah. just start becoming a climate activist now so that when you actually get screwed, you're already really good at like fighting for what you want. Yeah. Right. <laughs> start now. Start your activism now. A call for everyone to become <laughs> climate activists. Yes. This is a call for all the Asian American activists also. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fight for uh, anti-racism, but also at the same time, climate initiatives. Mm-hmm. I think everything is tied together anyway. Yeah. yeah. In the, at the end of the day. Yeah, we managed to tie anti-Asian <laughs> racism and climate change together, but like for some reason, depression and like teen depression gets left out of this. I thought that's also included. How? Uh-huh. Are we turning this into a radio lab episode where at the end we are like, look, everything is connected. <laughs> yes, yes. So basically, American kids are uh, don't have any support systems to deal with their mental health issues. So then they go and attack like Asians for no reason. Right? <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah, that that is that is a part of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Think about like how stupid the fact like you just go and like attack some random person because of some disease. Yes, it's, especially a seventy-year-old grandmother who walks with a cane or is like out 
picking up cans. So th- yeah. that's what I'm saying. We need to have support systems for teenagers so that they have access to discrete groups of people. Yes, but that can't happen if we don't address climate change now because we may not even have a world <laughs> to live in and fight for these things. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this actually reminds me of the civilian climate core that may be a thing in the future, right? Do you know what that is? No, I don't. So now Biden signed an ex- executive order or something saying that there should be a civilian climate core, which basically gets young people to be part of this gra- government program, which is all about like restoring the land, mm. you know, like helping out with climate change. Mm. And that's great. See, this is exactly somebody who's like a depressed teenager would need. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. is to have access yeah. to this group and like everyone's working towards something that's like good for the world and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah, I'm really enthusiastic for this. Yeah, I guess it gives you a sense of belonging too. Yeah, yeah, it gives you all the things that uh, the yeah, rest of society yeah. is like failing really badly at, you know. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I guess that's, uh, yeah, that's actually a really good thing for this generation. They they actually have something to like really get together and work for and mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. instead of just... Uh, uh, unlike us millennials who are like just languishing in boring dystopia. <laughs> yes, it is a boring dystopia, isn't it? <laughs> so that's all we have for this week. Join us next time. We'll be in conversation with a guest who actually knows what they're talking about. See you guys next time. 